Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ starts out our gospel reading today with these comforting words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Comforting words indeed. But even more so when you consider their context. You see, ever since Stephen Langton, a Roman Catholic cardinal, named, by the way, after St. Stephen, the martyr from our reading in Acts today, ever since this 13th century cardinal, Stephen Langton, added all those convenient chapter breaks in your Bible, way back in the year 1205 AD, the church has had to make a conscious effort ever since to remember to go back and check out what happened in St. John chapter 13, if you happen to be studying John chapter 14, like we are this morning. Prior to neatly dividing all the books of the Bible into numbered chapters, the ancient reader was kind of forced automatically, in a good way, to look at the surrounding context to finally find the verse he was originally hunting down. Now, I just said the word verse, but the Bible verses that we all know and love, they won't come along until about 1555. Now, that's about 10 years after Martin Luther died for a timeline comparison for you. So no, Luther's famous original German translation of the Bible did not contain verse numbers. And yes, it did have chapter divisions. So kind of interesting how Bibles have evolved. I tell you all this so that when you open your Bible at home, you're savvy not to treat these mostly helpful chapter and verse divisions that you see there. Don't treat them with the same reverence as you would the actual inspired text of Holy Scripture itself. And I tell you all this so that, again, when you're doing your Bible reading at home, you remember to make a habit of checking out the context of the passage that you are reading. It's just a good approach. As one Christian broadcaster that I used to listen to put it, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, the devil and some of his most outspoken mouthpieces in every generation, they like to leverage the Bible's authority by yanking from here or from there a verse out of its context and into their deceptive playbook. So be aware and check context. So in order to consider the context of our lesson today, let's go back to John chapter 13 before we push ahead too far into chapter 14. Then I believe we can appreciate even more our Lord's comforting words, let not your hearts be troubled. So in chapter 13 then, we find there, interestingly, four instances of our Lord's Double amen, amen, or truly, truly statements. As Deacon Bob pointed out last week, when our Lord Jesus introduces something that he's about to say with a truly, truly, I say to you preface, then both your ears should perk up right away, kind of like your puppy's ears when you whistle for them. Or as my granddaughter uh, picked up from her grade school teacher, hey, it's coyote quiet time. Teacher's turn to talk. She even taught me the hand gesture that goes with that. For context, I'll mention the two truly, truly statements 
in chapter 13 that are near our lesson, the beginning of chapter 14. So first, in John 13, 21, Jesus tells all 12 of his disciples in the upper room during their intimate last supper, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, that's a heavy word that Jesus dropped on them. Then a few verses later, Jesus puts boastful Peter in his place. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Betrayal, denial. And now on top of all that, Jesus in chapter 14 is trying to explain to his disciples that he is leaving them and going back to his father. So basically, we can now tack on some serious separation anxiety settling into their pre-existing mix of troubled hearts. Maybe if you've noticed already, this previous chapter context that we looked up actually makes Jesus' admonition to his disciples even more confusing amidst the impending chaos that's about to break out on all of them on this fateful night. Jesus, you're telling us that one who is eating with you, one of us, will betray you? Then you say, Peter, one of your inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John fame, Peter will deny you three times, and on top of all this, Lord, you're about to leave us? Okay, far from settling down our hearts, you've only made us feel more justified in having troubled hearts. Indeed, you've actually made our troubled condition worse than it already was. Well, that's probably not too far-fetched from the disciples' actual frame of mind at the time and in their present heart condition, very troubled. But the darker the surrounding darkness, the brighter the light shines forth. At least this is most certainly true with regard to him who is the light of the world. Jesus, writes St. John the Evangelist, way back in chapter 1 of his gospel, talk about context, that's even more broad for our context, but there in John chapter 1, the evangelist writes of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus has his whole agonizing trial that's ahead of him. He's got it under control. And that's what he's trying to get his disciples to see and to believe. Believe in God, believe also in me, he tells them. Actually, his foretelling of all these things, tragic and terrible these things though they be, his foretelling of them in and of itself demonstrates his control of all things. Jesus goes into the fray willingly with both eyes wide open. He even says as much later in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus has the whole thing worked out, but that still does not mean he's going through it all, his passion his suffering unscathed, far from it. That's why they call it his passion, his suffering. Here's one of the times that Jesus predicts his forthcoming hour of trial. In Matthew 20, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, 
were going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will raise, be raised to life. Well, in Matthew's gospel, this precise foretelling was actually the third time now that Jesus predicted his suffering and subsequent uh, resurrection to his disciples. While his foreknowledge of these events reveals his step-by-step plan, no one takes my life from me, he sells it elsewhere, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's from John 10. But such control, nevertheless, does not, however, provide Jesus any special insulation or protection from the physical and spiritual pain and punishment into which he voluntarily steps for you and me. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Isaiah's prophecy goes on, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Famous passage from Isaiah 53. That was written 700 years before Jesus' death on Calvary, before the Romans invented crucifixion, even before the Romans themselves were invented. So that's really some foretelling. In fact, as Peter points out in his epistle, this plan of Jesus becoming like you so he could be punished in your place and satisfy God's righteous anger against all sin, past, present, and future, this plan of redemption, as we call it, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's what Peter tells us. This was God's plan all along. And the sacrifice of God's lamb indeed worked, as evidenced by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's what makes us Easter people, people with a sure hope, a true and verifiable history with a solid rock foundation on which to build our trust. How does Peter put it in our epistle reading today? Jesus Christ quote, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, unquote. This is why Jesus shamelessly claims, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Who else dies for your sins? Who else rises from the dead? As foretold even by both prophets and Jesus himself. It's as Muhammad Ali used to say, it ain't bragging if it's true. We see this sort of, who do you think you are, Jesus? We see that challenge further played out in dramatic fashion in John chapter 2. I think you remember the scene, the skeptical religious leaders in Jerusalem take issue with Jesus, who has just, in their eyes, audaciously cleansed the temple, turning over tables, driving the money changers out. The Jewish leaders demanded, what sign can you show us, Jesus, to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus had spoken of was the temple of his body. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken from John chapter 2 there. So you see, here's a case where even for his own disciples, what Jesus was doing was unclear to them at the time. It didn't fully make sense to them. The brilliant light of Easter had not yet dawned on them. They had not yet witnessed both the darkness of their master's horrid death on Good Friday, and they hadn't yet met Jesus in his glorious resurrection body on Easter Sunday. But when they did, when they finally beheld with their own eyes and touched their resurrected master with their own hands and heard him speak more about the kingdom of God, then they understood. Then they could go back to all the things he was trying to tell them earlier when he was with them, when they were all still so slow to believe. Now they could and they would interpret all things in the clear and brilliant light of his glorious resurrection. Shockingly, what was previously thought impossible to these disciples actually started to make sense now. For instance, they now understood what Jesus was trying to say to them back at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus proclaimed. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies. Looking back now as Easter people, people who witnessed Jesus alive after being dead, they could now understand and believe. Furthermore, they were so convinced that Jesus, as he claimed, was the way, the truth, and the life, that they would go on willingly to give their lives for their unflinching testimony that he lives, their Lord lives and reigns. He is risen. are good, right on it. He indeed lives and forgives. This was essentially their message to the world, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. When Jesus gave them yet another sit up and pay attention, truly, truly utterance in verse 12 of our gospel lesson today, that was also one that they could go get back to later enlightened by Easter, and understand better what he was talking about. Jesus told them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus, our great high priest, has ascended in majesty to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. There he intercedes for you and for me. He prays for us, our advocate with the Father, his praying hands forever, bearing the marks of those nails that left the scars of salvation. They tell the wonderful story, paid in full. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And that is the ticket. Literally, that is our ticket to heaven. Even the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus comes back to make all things new. Think about it. What could be greater if we could perform such great deeds as raising the dead, like Jesus raised Lazarus? Well, Lazarus had to die all over again, didn't he? If we could heal a man born blind with a little spittle of our own, might be fun to try. 
But that man would eventually still have to close his eyes in death to this world and await reopening them in the great resurrection of all the dead. That is, providing he believed, providing his trust was in the Lord, who saves all who call upon his name. For if those healed of deafness, those healed of cancer, broken limbs, and all manner of rare diseases, if they lose their faith, what is that temporary healing next to eternity as a lost soul? Jesus gave his church on earth the power to forgive sins to all who repent. That's radical. And he grants to all who repent eternal life in his name. His forgiveness is not flashy, like a lot of faith healing you see on TV. In fact, this miracle of forgiveness comes through such ordinary things as water, bread, and table wine. It comes through the scratchy voice of a servant of Christ who reads the forgiveness of your sins to you off ink and paper every week. But if our Lord himself chose such simple things to perform such great things, then let not your heart be troubled. His promises attached to such things are amen and amen and truly, truly. Through such simple means, our Savior calls you to be his chosen people, God's special possession, that you now may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Amen. And may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus.